This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here with our mountain returning correspondents, David Canfield. Hello. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. Uh, we'll also be joined later, or I will be joined later, by Richard Lawson, who is still somewhere in the canals of Venice, because... Guys, I feel like we're, like, in the locker room at halftime, not to bring a sports metaphor into movies. Um, <laughs> but Telluride is over. Venice is still ongoing, but wrapping up. Uh, Toronto is right around the corner. We really are in this kind of, like, breather moment uh, amid festivals to talk about a ton of stuff that we've learned. Are, are you guys completely worn out after Telluride? Are you energized by the season of head? Maybe a little bit of both? I think a little bit of both. I feel like <laughs> I forget how tiring festivals are. I mean, it's so much fun and excitement, but by the last day, you're just like, where am I? What is happening? <laughs> but I, I think we have a lot to talk about with the movie, so it's nice to feel like we've finally seen a large chunk of what know, we're going to be discussing. Um, well, we talked a little bit about Tar last week. That was kind of the first festival title we really got to dive into, and I don't want to just go right back to it, but I do feel like Tar was the subject of the entire weekend. We heard from Richard last week about what a triumphance was. Now you guys have seen it, and you saw Kate Blanchett kind of ruling the roost at Telluride. Am I right that that was the story of the weekend? I think it was one of them. Uh, it was definitely, okay. Okay. Per- performance-wise, I think it was definitely the one that um, popped the most. It was definitely the one that popped the most. And I think for those who had seen the movie... That, that at that tribute screening, it was sort of like an overwhelming Kate Blanchett love fest <laughs> um, because she's just so extraordinary in the movie. But there were a couple other movies that popped for sure, um, but that one did take up a lot of oxygen, also just because it's a real conversation starter. Yeah, I feel like that was the one everyone was talking about, you know, the day we arrived and the and before it had screened, just because the buzz was so big. Um, and and David and I went to the Kate Blanchett tribute, the first screening, and. You could feel that excitement in the room. Um, and I think, to me, it totally delivered on on all my high expectations. But it's interesting because in the days after, before I left, I was sort of talking to random people on the street, other festival goers, about that film because it came up a lot. And it was more polarizing than I thought when, mm. when you got beyond the, the press and critics. Polarizing, I mean, I guess the subject matter, is that the the issue here? I think if people just liked it, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I mean, interesting. There are some actors who, at at various off the record <laughs> events, uh, expressed not loving the movie. Uh, so I can't reveal who they are, but um, <laughs> I, I think that did speak to generally the movie 
asking a lot of people in its first half hour or so, a lot has been made of the fact that the entire usually end credits show up at the beginning of the movie, which I think has a lot to do with what the movie's about, being about a conductor, kind of dismantling a kind of auteur theory. I thought that was interesting. And then you go into a 10 to 15 minute interview between Blanchett's character and Adam Gopnik of The New Yorker playing himself. So, you know, you, you t- it takes a while for you to settle in and realize what you're in for, um, which maybe for some viewers, uh, some audience members was trickier. Um, for me, there was a kind of classic split in terms of what hit the most between what's surely a cl- both are very well reviewed, but one is, I think, more arty and demanding and chillier in tar. Um, and that, I think, got the best, best reviews out of the festival. And the other is Women Talking, which, from what I could tell, got had the best word of mouth of any movie there. I was at the tribute premiere for the Sarah Pauly event. Uh, she's the writer-director, um, and it was just an incredibly well-received premiere. It was the first screening I went to, and I don't think any screening match just in terms of, you know, laughing at the right moments, silence at the right moments, and the the quality of applause at the end. And it ends on a really hopeful note, which I think left people feeling maybe surprisingly good for a film that's really tough and difficult at times, but finds a lot of hope in, in the way it tells its story. So that was one that really, I thought, played ex- extremely well pretty much across the board. Rebecca, in your conversation with random festival goers, did people share that love for women? I mean, we've been in the tank for women talking in Sarah Polly is as well established <laughs> on the show, but I don't think it was just us, right? No, yeah. I mean, I feel like most people I talked to loved that film. There definitely is a, a sort of a murmur about, you know, if it can, if it will be as beloved by Academy voters, um, which I think it will, and I have faith in the Academy. But, you know, I feel like we've heard this conversation about a, a movie that's 99% women talking in a room, like will the still majority male uh, Academy membership, you know, appreciate that. But I, obviously that is uh, completely possible for male audience members <laughs> to appreciate this movie. So I think it's it's definitely feels like uh, one of the top films that came out of that festival. Yeah, I want to promote the interviews you guys both did over throughout Telluride because it's one of the really remarkable things about the festival is everyone's very, uh, very nearby. Um, you can kind of grab them all. Um, and David, you talked to a lot of the cast of Women Talking in this really long, rambling conversation, which, you know, as someone who's <laughs> read the book but hasn't seen the movie yet, but it felt like such a fascinating distillation of what the book has and what it seems like the movie has in it. Yeah, just like a good reason to root for all of these people as the movie makes its way through the season. Yeah, um, they were truly everywhere, too. <laughs> <laughs> they were, I mean, I have friends who ran into like just groups of women talking women like Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley and Frances McDormand, Sarah Polly in the bathroom. At, I saw them at the Empire of Light premiere. I walked by them on the street more times than I can count, especially Frances McDormand, who was absolutely living her best life at this festival <laughs> <laughs> based on the smile on her face that never seemed to go away. And just generally, I think that it was the premiere for Telluride. Tar, of course, was at Venice, as were a couple of other films. The other film... Empire of Light, Sam Mendes was the only person in town for it. Uh, Michael Ward and Olivia Coleman, the stars of the movie, zoomed in for the premiere. So it was just a full, complete um, women talking moment, uh, especially uh, those first few days after the movie premiered. And um, I, I think it really showed how much they love and believe in the movie. And yet, to your point about that interview, Katie, we were seated on benches outside, and it was me, not in a hayloft, but not in a hayloft, hayloft, not in a hayloft, but um, 
it was outside of an, an ice hockey rink, more accurately, <laughs> as it goes in Telluride. Um, <laughs> and it's just me, and they're kind of seated on benches around me. And the conversation was one of the more unusual and moving ones I've had, uh, in, certainly at a festival, just in terms of the way they were able to talk about what the movie meant to them, as well as the process of making it. And I think that that kind of dialogue about the movie that they're able to have is going to serve them well over the next few months. Yeah, I want to talk about Empire of Light, actually, because I was just thinking, as you were talking about women talking, be a little bit hopeful, but Tar being a little alienating. We can talk about Bardo later. But in terms of a movie that makes people feel, like kind of hits you in the heart and makes you feel good in a way, it seems like Empire of Light might have that lane to itself almost. Am I reading this movie correctly? Yeah, I mean, there are parts of it that are very hard to watch because it does explore racial issues in that time period. Um, in the early 80s. In the right? early 80s, yeah, in the UK. And uh, But, I mean, I was totally pulled into it. I really enjoyed the film. It's beautifully shot by Roger Deakins. It, it's got these phenomenal performances by Olivia Coleman and Michael Ward. Um, and it also is sort of that classic movie that the Academy really mm-hmm. appreciates. It's about cinema. It, it does have that sort of uplifting you know, storyline. And it's funny because all the people I talked to who did not like Tar loved Empire of Light. And I Mm. do think there is something about an Academy voter that will definitely love this movie. So we should definitely be paying attention to it. This is already the uh, the um, Green Book versus Roma of, of this year. Yeah, and yeah, you could you, you could argue you could argue women talking is kind of in that perfect middle ground because yeah that the contrast between Empire of Light and Tar is really striking because Empire of Light's uh, received so far pretty mixed reviews, but to me it's really perfectly in that kind of JoJo Rabbit Belfast vein where critics might not be as warm to it, but. Um, the combination of what it says about movies and its um, ultimately very sweet and uplifting tone feels tailor-made for the Academy. Um, I think a lot of people, including myself, had some issues with with the script and directions he takes the story in, but there's no denying that Sam Mendes knows how to put a movie together. And just as Rebecca said, the way it looks, the way it sounds, Olivia Coleman is so good, uh, as is Michael Ward. Um, there's so much there that you just know is going to appeal to this block of voters that it, it should be able to sustain itself pretty well, I think. Well, David, you with Belfast and Jojo Rabbit, I believe you named two Toronto Audience Award winners um, from recent years. And Empire of Light is headed to Toronto after this. So now my my little antenna are tingling. It's got to get past Steven Spielberg and the Knives Out sequel. But that's that seems like a possible route. Yeah, I think that's exactly why it's going there. Uh, and same with Women Talking. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how, how far that can yeah. go in Toronto. I mean, that's... I suppose, the next big test for this season. Yeah. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. 
the fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. We should talk about Bardo, um, which Richard will be able to talk about as well. Uh, it was also at Venice and then came to Telluride. Um, and I had heard from a friend who does not work with us that for as much as Tar is a movie everyone seems to agree on and, you know, people had been more skeptical of Bardo, that there that there were pockets of support for Bardo out there in Telluride among filmmakers. Um, and it might not be as, as much of a dud as it seems. Did it feel that way to you guys? Yeah, I think when we left the screening, which started at like 8.45 p.m. and it's a three-hour movie. So we were all, <laughs> you know, a, a little tired uh, by the time it got out. But it, it felt very cold to the reaction. Um, but then, you know, you saw these filmmakers come out. Um, Chloe Jaw was there and Barry Jenkins was tweeting about it and, and Lulu Wong. So who really related to the film and, and felt... Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of powerful emotions about it. And and for me, I felt it is too long, but there are moments in that movie that are magnificent. And I firmly believe there is a really wonderful two-hour movie in there if, if there'd been a little bit of uh, cutting down. But those moments that were so great, I was like, I just want more of this. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one, but I do think it is worth noting that there are People who maybe, especially like Chloe Job, people who have had this sort of immigration identity issues that they've also grappled with that are really um, relating to this film. And Rebecca, you talked to Anuri too at Telluride and about some of that response, which I, th- I think is interesting to get people when the reviews for their movie have just come out. And he seemed kind of perplexed but not angry about the reviews, right? Yeah, I mean, he seemed a little angry. He hadn't read them <laughs> all. Uh, but perplexed is the right word because he just kept saying, I don't understand what self-indulgent means with this. Like, this is my story. Like, he has openly said this is not him in the movie, but this is based on his personal journey. And so there are lots of filmmakers who have made movies about things they're grappling with personally. And I think he felt like he had a right to do that. So, yeah, it's interesting to hear him talk about it and to see him, you know, just a couple of days after those reviews had come out and he was dealing with. He also said he may not make another movie again, which I yeah. got really worried about. He really <laughs> buried the lead in that interview. It's like the very end. It's like, wait, really? <laughs> that doesn't seem possible. Something will pull him back in, I'm sure. But I'm, I feel like there'll be another long break before we see something from him. And yeah, I mean, among the questions we got from listeners on subtext about this crazy weekend, and yes, a lot of them were about, don't worry, darling, we'll get there. <laughs> um, but um, Haslin asked, if this is the first year that Netflix may not have a bona fide Oscar contender because the reviews for Bardem were, were mediocre, and then White Noise, which was not at Telluride, but was at Venice, was not especially um, hugely received either. Um, 
How are you guys feeling about Netflix? This, you know, it's been such a juggernaut for the last couple of years. Is Bardo going to be a tougher sell than Power the Dog and Roma? Um, it's it's definitely not last year. Um, for mm-hmm. example, I mean, coming out of the festivals, you had Power the Dog and Lost Daughter were on such a high with critics alone, and and were able to between them. And then you also had movies like Don't Look Up, which came later, amassing a lot of Oscar nominations. Um, tick, tick, boom. It, tick, tick, and tick, tick, boom, which premiered at AFI. It's it's going to be a, a tough year for them. I mean, I think that's really quite clear. You know, if you talk about the highlights, Women Talking, Tar, maybe Empire of Light to an extent, like Netflix just isn't really in that category out of Telluride, despite having, you know, thrown events for each of their films. They also had later Ch- Lady Chatterley's Lover and The Wonder, which were, you know, pretty decently received, but they're not going to be significant Oscar movies, I don't think. The bigger question is, to Rebecca's point, about what they can do with a movie like Bardo, because there's definitely going to be filmmaker support to an extent for what is such a personal statement. But if you look at between that and Empire of Light, the two movies that maybe the two big movies that critics maybe weren't as warm to, Empire of Light played really well with the audience, and Bardo really didn't. Um, and I think that's a really important difference. Um, this is not a movie that's going to have a lot of critical support from what we've seen out of both Venice and Telly right now. It's pretty good sample size at this point. And it's not an audience-friendly movie either. It's kind of in that really awkward middle ground where I suppose you could see the director's branch, who really love Inuritu, uh lobbying for yeah. him. But it's very hard for me to see this movie making the top 10 for Best Picture. On the other hand, I'm very intrigued by Glass Onion, which is premiering at TIFF next week. Um, or I guess it's it, this week is the more accurate way of putting it at this point. <laughs> what is, what all is sense time? Of t- all sense of time is gone. <laughs> I don't know what time zone I'm in right now. Um, <laughs> because Knives Out really was one or two slots away from getting nominated um, in its year. And yeah. this that was back when we did not have 10 Best Picture nominees. Um, the war, advance run on this one, I have not seen it. I don't know anything about it, is, is pretty good. And so... And just generally, it seems like Netflix desperately needs a crowd pleaser to have among its mix because, I mean, Rebecca and I have not seen White Noise or heard anything about it, tell you right, because no one there had seen it. Um, so Richard can get into that more. But it also does not sound like it's the kind of movie that's going to win over, you know, the hearts of of um, not-so-cynical Academy members. So <laughs> in conclusion, I think that they are in trouble, but they also have one unseen movie and they have one movie that is a really unusual case. I don't think it can go very far, but it it can definitely pick up some nominations. The craft on Bardo alone is pretty remarkable. I do, and I know some Netflix people listen to our podcast and will roll their eyes, but I do wonder if there's any way this movie could be cut down before it's released. But I, I, you know, when you're working with an auteur who's telling his personal story, I don't think you can go back to them and say, uh, you want to do a little trimming, but I, I just... I wish that was something that could have been considered or maybe done earlier in this process to trim it down a little. Because I do think if there's anything we heard on the ground at the festival was that people are not tolerating long movies, maybe like they did before the pandemic. I don't know if we all just got used to watching things at home and being able to Watching eight-hour streaming series instead. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> like, we're fine with that, but God forbid a three-hour movie. Yeah. So it does feel like... This is not the only movie that everyone was like, this is too long, you know? So um, there's quite a few others that I think. Blonde that... is very long, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Richard will talk more about that. And Fableman's you know, coming up at, t- at TIFF this weekend, I think, is also pretty long. 
Tar is quite long, but it's funny. The amount of work you have to do to get to the meat of the movie, it -hmm. doesn't feel that long by the time you're actually in it. So (laughs) that's a neat trick of it, I think. Um, It's a kind of similar question, you know, and we I think we all want to be careful about how much we talk about like, well, this person's getting nominated and that person's getting nominated because that kind of hyperbole flies around a lot this time of year. But I think there are some inferences we can make about the season ahead. Um, But we got a question from Thomas saying, is there any chance that Paul Mescal could enter the best actor race now that the field is looking a bit weaker? Um, And David, you wrote about best actor specifically in our um, festival live blog over the weekend about how, you know, with Bardo underperforming a bit, with White Noise underperforming a bit, um, it is it does look like kind of a more open field than it did a few days ago. Yeah, I mean, not to to pile on Netflix, but I think two contenders we were really looking at were Adam Driver uh, for White Noise and Daniel Jimenez-Cacho for Bardo. And those don't look like sure things at the very least. Um, so, yeah, the category really opened up. And you can also factor in um, the fact that there's just not – and it's a nice change of pace because a lot of the movies we're talking about that really hit have – lead performances from actresses. Uh, Empire of Light, I would assume Michael Ward will go supporting. You could probably argue he could be pushed for lead. Um, But Women Talking is almost all women. Ben Wishaw is a strong supporting actor candidate, but he's the only one. And um, Tar, of course, is the Kate Blanchett show. So over on Actor, you have a really unusual mix that kind of reminds me how we talked about Actress last year. And so, yeah, you have someone like Paul Mescal who is in After Sun, which was really well-received at Telluride, as it was at Cannes. Um, it's also going to Toronto. A24 is handling it. Um, I think they believe in the movie. A24 also has a really stacked slate. <laughs> and yeah. um, I think they're going to have to take a little bit of a wait-and-see approach on how much they will push him, especially because, in my opinion, the pretty strong Best Actor frontrunner right now is an A24 contender, Brendan Fraser for The Whale. But, you know, it, it's starting to fill up. We had Banshees of Inisherin get pretty incredible reviews on Monday in Venice. Colin Farrell seems pretty likely to get his first nomination. Bill Nye's another— Thank re- goodness. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I, I've Way been, too long. I've been hinting. I've been hinting. I know. Uh, well, yeah, that's the thing is you—we've you, you I, known that you've seen it and you've been trying to be coy about it. I guess, you know, you weren't at Venice, but you wrote our first look for it. But you, you right. know more than me and Rebecca, at least, and know that Colin's got the goods. Yeah, and I know Richard agrees, so he can— he can yeah. carry that home for us on this podcast. Um, but the other really thing, the other thing I loved about uh, just being in Telluride and particularly thinking about this category was seeing people like Bill Nye and uh, Song Kang Ho who are uh, repping smaller movies, well-received movies, and just charming the hell out of everybody who walked by them. And and you hope there's room for, for an actor like that too. Um, I think it's going to be very, it's it's very hard to say at this stage which of that, that, big group of great performances in small movies will actually have what it takes to go the distance. But I'd say Mescal is among that group right now. I personally wouldn't predict him yet, but never say never. Well, this also, to me, and it's, it's hard to think about this now because we're such in festival fever, but Austin Butler and Elvis and Tom Cruise and Top Gun, like, it, they are Absolutely. still there. And when that, that filter is thinning out. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, I, I wrote the piece about Tom Cruise a couple months ago, and, like, I still stand by that that would be a perfectly fine Best Actor nomination. So, you know, could could happen. 
Uh, okay, before we um, – we want to talk about Don't Worry Darling a little bit before we bring in Richard for his on-the-ground perspective on uh, the story of the week. But let's look ahead to Toronto just for a second because, as we said, Glastonia is still premiering there. Fablemans, um, which we uh, anticipate might have a very big Michelle Williams performance in it, speaking of Best Actress, are coming there. Um, David, you'll be there. What else are you expecting to emerge or morph in terms of narrative um, at Toronto? Uh, out of Toronto, I always look for those – Movies we know so little about uh, that might have a big performance in them. Still Alice, quite famously, launched mm. Julianne Moore out of nowhere. Um, so I'm looking at a movie like The Lost King, which has Sally Hawkins. It's directed by Stephen Frears, who has uh, directed many an Oscar-nominated performance. That's premiering Friday night. Um, on the more commercial side, The Woman King kind of feels right in between uh, a maybe Oscar movie or a more commercial play. Um, it's from Gina Price uh, Blythewood, and it has Viola Davis – um, it's also out in September, which makes it sound like a more commercial play. Yes, exactly. Um, but it's the trailer was kind of badass, so <laughs> uh, people are people are looking at it, and I think that there is some hope for it to go pretty far as, as a big movie, maybe rounding out a Best Picture ten. We shall see. Um, Jennifer Lawrence has a kind of mystery movie in Causeway. She just uh, had a big Vogue cover out in advance of the mm-hmm. TIFF premiere, which piqued my interest a little bit. Brian Terry Henry is also starring in that. Um, and Devotion, uh, which Rebecca wrote our first look on. Uh, and that's a movie that has Jonathan Majors, who also had a big profile out recently, um, star who deserves a real platform, I think, and a real showcase uh, at a movie of what I hope is this scale. So, um yeah, there's lots to look forward to. It's it's a pretty packed lineup. I'm also going to throw in the inspection, uh, which we've talked about plenty already. Yes, but just absolutely. remembering that the Gabrielle Union moment could be days away or hours away as you listen to this. I was truly looking at my Friday to Monday schedule, and I'm seeing the inspection on Thursday. So that's why I forgot to mention it, because that's <laughs> literally happening the day this podcast is out, which is kind of horrifying to me. But anyway, I'm excited to see it. <laughs> Rebecca, watching from afar, is there anything you'll be looking for uh, happening at TIFF? David mentioned The Woman King. I am curious how that play. I think it'll play well with, at that audience. And and I haven't seen Glass Onion yet, but I'm also very interested in that one. And I do agree with David that I think Netflix could make a good run with that um, as well. So I'm, I'm going to have a lot of FOMO, but uh, I'll be watching from afar. Okay, let's let's move over to Venice in our minds um, to talk about Don't Worry Darling. And like, as I said, uh, Richard will weigh in a little bit after this. But while I have the two of you, um, it really has been, it was the story of Labor Day. And I think part of this is because in America, uh, people had the day off of work. So they spent all day following the Don't Worry Darling premiere on Twitter. Um, I don't know how much we want to get into the raft of JFK-level conspiracy theories about <laughs> what happened at that premiere. Um, but David and Rebecca, you guys have seen the movie, um, which I think went over... Okay to not great. Um, what I mean, is this going to just keep snowballing until the movie opens to $100 million? Like, what is going to happen with Don't Worry Darling from here? Uh, just release the movie and let's <laughs> move on at this point. <laughs> I mean, I think if there weren't all this drama, honestly, other than the Harry Styles of it all, I feel like this movie would have kind of come and gone and everyone been like, yep. that was okay. But it's just the noise is so much louder than the actual movie at this point. I, I I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, Dave and I have both seen it. I I think it was fine. I think Florence Pugh is phenomenal in it, as she is in almost everything she does. But it is not something that would get any conversation beyond its release weekend if it weren't for the rest of this stuff happening. Correct. I don't think it's a very good. I, I don't think it's a very good movie, um, candidly. And I just. 
it's sort of baffling to me how far this has gone and how far it's – I mean, it's probably – Five things will have happened by the time this podcast is out uh, versus right. our recording. Yeah, sure. We, we should not talk about the spit video because who knows what we'll n- know about what may or may not have happened by the time this comes out. Alleged spit, I should say. Alleged spit. Emphasis on alleged. Yeah. I mean, should people go see it? Like, is it worth to see what all this fuss is about? I mean, I think people have watched more hours of the spit take than the actual length of the movie. Like the deep, I did some deep analysis, you know, on Twitter. But the slow mo video I, is really compelling. I, but should people see? Uh, I think <laughs> Sorry. that was the best I've ever. Should people see it? Um, yes, I think people should see it. You know, like I said, there are some good parts to it, but don't go into it hoping to like see some of the undercurrents of drama because I was looking for them when we were screening right. it and you, you can't there's nothing to spot there here's what I would say it, it is a really in many ways routine kind of social thriller that has all this intrigue being projected onto it but the movie itself is pretty standard and <laughs> If you're going in being like, oh, my God, what am I going to catch out of all of this behind-the-scenes drama? You are going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, and that's not even a reflection of the quality of the movie. It's just not – the movie does not really have that. It's, you know, very – it's it's nicely put together. I think the third act is particularly messy, and I'm not quite sure what happened there in the script. There is a um, a stabbing, let's say, that I found really confounding. Um, wow. Didn't know there yeah. was a stabbing. See, I'm already learning There you something. go. Um, but it's it's just a movie that does not rise to the level of the conversation around it. And that is really my takeaway. I would like it if um, the power of gossip and drama and like Twitter sleuthing managed to save movie theaters by sending everyone to see Don't Worry Darling on opening weekend <laughs> or just be <laughs> something nice about putting all this energy towards something. So maybe maybe I'm rooting for its unqualified success. But then we might have to keep talking about it. Katie. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> sure it might be time to move on. So, Rebecca, before we jump to Richard and Venice, I did want to talk about a really exciting first look that you wrote for us, um, where Babylon is just one of the huge question marks remaining in the season. So many of the other major movies are at festivals, and you got a first look at it and to talk to Damien Chazelle about a little bit. They're kind of keeping a lot of secrets to themselves. But uh, what did you learn about Babylon? Well, Katie, this has been a project I feel like I've been paying attention to since we did our Oscar predictions the day after last year's Oscars. I, picked <laughs> I think it, it was my, a good prediction. My best picture one. Because I, I, I think Damien is just like extremely talented. He can do these sort of big showy pieces as we saw with La La Land. But then when you look at something like Whiplash, he can do something that's sort of dark and tortured as well. So um, I thought this could be right up that. Uh, a nice happy medium between those two things. And it seems like it's going to be, you know, we had heard that this was a project that stars Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie and that they were playing, you know, Hollywood actors in the 1920s. Um, We'd heard Margot was playing Clara Bow, but, you know, talking to Damien, it turns out that the characters are fictional, but inspired by a lot of real life Hollywood actors. Um, But it is going to be sort of this big, bold take of, of that time period in Hollywood. I do love the fact that there is one person playing a real person, Max Minghella as Irving Thalberg, who was this kind of this wunderkind producer in that period of Hollywood, who I have always found totally fascinating. So I love that he is the one real person in there. 
Yeah, I think it's nice they have that touch. And I'm sure when we all see this film, there will be a lot of references that, you know, are familiar to us about other actors. Um, But it's just got a, you know, beyond Margot and Brad, who I think are going to give really showy performances in this, it's got a really strong supporting ensemble because it's really supposed to follow several different characters in Hollywood, you know, so you're going to see Gene Smart and Tommy McGuire. And so, so it's not, it's not just the two of them, but uh, I think we're going to see some sort of breakout performances from the supporting group as well. Yeah, I didn't realize until reading your piece that Diego Calva is kind of the third lead in the movie. He's playing uh, this character, Manny Torres, who's a Mexican immigrant to Hollywood. Um, I don't know if that means it's going to kind of expand beyond history, because I think we know that the um, amount of leading man roles for Mexican actors at that time was pretty limited. But um, I thought that was a really intriguing addition that I didn't know already. Yeah, I mean, of course, we all pay attention to Brad and Margot, but I think that Calva could really be sort of a breakout uh, discovery from this as well, if his role is as big as, as it sounds like it is. So the photos were so intriguing. I mean, I, I kind of peeked through them in our in our CMS last week. Uh, I got really stuck on the Tobey Maguire image where he has like this wild makeup on that makes him look like a goblin. <laughs> I don't know what is happening. There had been rumors that his character was Charlie Chaplin. I, we didn't really get any confirmation on that. Um, what images really popped for you? I think, uh, obviously, the Tommy Maguire one, and everyone <laughs> should check that out. But, you know, there's this image of Margot sort of being uh, carried across this huge party scene, um, you know, on her back. And, like, you know, I may have seen... A little bit of footage that indicates that this movie is definitely going to have these sort of big scenes with lots of extras and partying and and sort of that, like, you know, great Gatsby uh, feel to it. So I think that's something I'm really excited to see because I I do think Damon Chazelle can pull off uh, that sort of choreography so well. Yeah, and I, lo- I love the shot of uh, Lee Jun Lee as Lady Fei Zhu, uh, who seems like she would be based on Anna Mae Wong, who was a, um, you know, a Chinese-American major star in that period. Um, you know, she's got this, like, Marlena Dietrich tux outfit on. I don't know. I don't know anything else about it, but it's a great image. Obviously smoking a cigarette in the shot. So, you know, it definitely has that drama to it. Yeah, you make a movie set in old Hollywood and you get to have so many glamorous smoking shots and don't <laughs> have to feel too bad about it. Um, well... I assume that we're just going to continue looking ahead toward Babylon as this huge kind of looming player at the end of the season. We don't have any sense if it's going to show up sooner. Um, Do you feel like they're going to give us this and then really hold it tight until like Thanksgiving? You know, it's interesting because it doesn't come out till Christmas. And when I talked to Damon, he wasn't done yet. He was hoping to be done by October with the actual final cut. So uh, who knows how much they can actually do before that. But I wouldn't be surprised if it shows up at one of the festivals. Uh, But so far, no confirmation on that. Yeah. I mean, we I think we all remember like West Side Story last year being this right around Thanksgiving premiere. Um, And, you know, it wouldn't be a fun season if we didn't have one last mystery to look forward to. So... Um, Oh, and one last thing I'll add while we're talking about festival season is that Damien will be at TIFF to kind of present some footage from Babylon. I think you and I both guess it might be what you saw, something close to it, maybe not revealing too much more. But um, maybe by the time we talk next week, we'll know even more. Those lucky festival attendees and their sneak (laughs) peek. I'm so jealous. (laughs) Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. 
Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs, and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Well, hello, Richard. You are back from Venice, and in a manner of speaking, you're in a you're in a bardo of of a kind, maybe between Venice and Toronto right now. How you doing? Yeah, buona notte or good morning or I don't know when what time it is. Um, but yeah, I'm in a sort of weird dream state um, where everything is surreal. But also importantly, like Bardo, everything's about me. Mm, that's right. Uh, that that is what uh, <laughs> what weeks of watching movies will teach you, I think. Yeah. Um, well, as listeners hear this, they have just heard. Well, they've heard me and Rebecca talking about Babylon, but before that, they heard me and Rebecca and David talking about um, what felt like the story of Venice. And um, Richard, you are Chris Pine's stylist, I believe. So I would like oh, yeah. uh, any forensic evidence you have you want to share with us right now. He walked into my atelier. He said, "Give me the Mariel Hemingway." Um, I obliged. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I thought he looked fun. I mean, I mean, look, you know, we obviously Timmy Chalamet with the red backless pantsuit thing stole a lot of the accolades, and then people were kind of scratching their heads at Chris Pine. But I think it was a necessary bit of levity for what was otherwise a very bizarre twenty-four-ish hours for Don't Worry, Darling. Yeah, I mean, Richard, you were there in Venice. I don't know how much of this you witnessed firsthand, if any. But uh, anything you would like to add to the Don't Worry, Darling discourse, which has gone through like four phases uh, since we last talked. Yeah, I mean, I didn't go to the press conference or anything. So or the premiere. So I, I wasn't I didn't bear witness to any of that. So I don't unfortunately don't have any fun, juicy details about that. But I will say that I'm sure that the people who made the film feel differently. But it was kind of exciting, undeniably, to be there and to feel like people back home or elsewhere in the world were actually talking about this film festival, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. um, that in recent years has sometimes felt like you're, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle to get anyone to care. And look, I get it. These are movies that people aren't going to see for a while. Well, in Don't Worry Darling's case, it's a few weeks. But like, you know, yeah. it can be tricky to sort of turn people's heads toward, away from their lives to be like, hey, come read about this cool thing that I'm, that I'm at, you know. Um, <laughs> so that helped. And I think also, you know, uh, the Brendan Fraser of it all with The Whale, like, it just felt like a lot of eyes were on Venice this year, um, which made it feel really exciting. Yeah. Um, and I want to go to the, um, the most recent thing that people's eyes are on, uh, which is Blonde, which yeah. um, is premiering pretty much as this episode is being released. I mean, I think going into the festival, that was the one that people kind of had the most... Um, like the schadenfreude alert up for more so than Don't Worry Darling. Um, And so after that whole Mishigasa, how did Blonde live up to those expectations? You know, it's interesting. I think people had been reading some tea leaves about um, Blonde premiering so late in the festival. You know, you would expect a movie of that kind of profile to be on the first weekend or, you know, Monday or something. But it's the Thursday premiere toward the end of the festival, uh, which tends to indicate not good things. So I went in with pretty low expectations and they were surpassed. I mean, definitely, you know, it's not a pleasant movie to watch. It's two hours and 46 minutes of Marilyn Monroe basically falling apart until she dies. We have troubled origins, you know, as a child for her that have 
you know, this is all based on Joyce Carol Oates' novel, Blonde. So it's not, we're, they're not going for pure historical accuracy here. Um, it's much more of a movie about fame in general than it is specifically about Marilyn Monroe. She's just kind of the vessel for this really brutal graphic depiction of what fame can do to your mind, especially if you are already predisposed to have mental health problems and maybe addiction problems. And, or, you know, I guess the question is what comes first, you know, which is it, does the fame cause that? Does it exacerbate it? And I don't know, I think Andrew Dominic, the director and writer, uh, producer, he, he's poking at that stuff in an interesting way. Um, Ana de Armas is giving a very fully committed, full throat performance. Um, you know, she doesn't sound like Marilyn Monroe because Marilyn Monroe didn't have a Cuban accent, but 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 you know more importantly, she gets the 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 emotion. You know, right, you know, it's a lot of repetitive, just like her crying or screaming or whatever. But but you know, it's a really breakneck thing from Ana de Armas. And in my review, I, I I sort of praise that stuff, but also have questions about whether or not the movie is kind of meta self aware. You know, it's about people exploiting her, but is the movie also exploiting her? Is hmm. exploiting Marilyn or Ana de Armas or both? Uh, maybe both. I don't know. Hmm. You know, I mean, there there is one scene in particular that I won't spoil that I think is the reason why the movie has an NC-17 rating. You kind of wonder, like, okay, what? why textually is this in here? The, the movie really skirts a line, you know, and I, I think it when it crosses it, it's mostly provocatively interesting. Maybe not every time, but I think that the reaction to that will certainly vary depending on who's watching it. Do you think it is unpleasant to the point that people will generally not watch it? I mean, it'll be on Netflix in a few weeks, I think. I I I think I could because it's on Netflix. I could see people checking it out and turning it off after half an hour. Yeah, I mean, it's not look. It's not like she's you know. It's it's not a torture porn kind of thing. It's just a really intense headspace to be in for that for nearly three hours. I mean, that kind of seems to be a theme of a lot of the movies at Venice. Um. I don't know where you want to start. Bardo, the sun, or the whale. All of them, from what yeah. I'm hearing, seem to be a similar vibe of like, oh boy, buckle up for this one. Yeah, you know, it's really funny to be in this beautiful place right by the beach, kind of whimsically, everyone's arriving on boats, and then to go sit and see these long, <laughs> depressing things. <laughs> um, Bardo, I think, you know, that's, that is th- almost three hours as well. Uh, it's, you know, Alejandro González Iñárritu. Uh, this is his... My most personal film to date. It seems like he's borrowing a lot from his own life or th- his own musings on his career and his relationship to his native Mexico. Uh, and that's all worthy stuff. And certainly, as with all of his films, there are many interesting technical aspects to the film. But I think it doesn't quite hang together as a a movie that you really feel. You know, it it it, it kind of winds up for the last 30, 40 minutes, maybe being that sort of thing of like, wouldn't it be sad if I died? You know, like, how would everyone react? Like very Tom Sawyer looking, you know, watching his own funeral. And there's something that is, I think, you know, a lot, I was not alone in this, but people saw as kind of being typically Inuriti and self-involved, you know, and to put that in a movie that's, it's grueling to sit through just because it's so long. It's a tough sell. And I think that um, Netflix was really taken off guard by the reaction to it. I think they had thought it would be a lot more positive. 
Well, we should stick on Netflix and talk about White Noise, which uh, David and Rebecca and I did talk about um, a little bit, but you were actually there to see. I mean, it, it got the shortest standing ovation, Richard. And I don't know what more scientific metric we could ask for uh, in terms of how a movie was received. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's that. maybe that was just first day. and People were like, oh, I, don't, I want to save the standing ovation for later. Um, <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. I mean, the, the yeah. standing ovation meters really went uh, haywire. They, yeah, <laughs> they don't, for the hundredth time, they don't really mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a combination of who's in the room and, you know, whatever, what kind of mood people are in, um, everything gets a standing ovation. Um, yeah. Not at the press screenings, at the premieres. Um, but you know, White Noise is tricky because it's, you know, it's this weird book that is beloved by, you know, some from 37 years ago. And Baumbach seems to be one of the people who loves it. And I think in that sort of passion for the for the material, this is his first time directing an adaptation of someone else's work. Um, he gets a little bit, he loses himself a little bit. And you're kind of just like, all right, I mean, there's good filmmaking here and good acting. Like, Adam Driver's great. But like, what was the point? Like, why this? You know, mm. whereas so many other of Baumbach's movies feel like it's him, it's his, it's his mind, it's his ideas, um, you know, really put on screen, whether that's to funny effect, to sad effect, to both. Um, and this just feels kind of flat, um, despite it being a really expensive production. I mean, I think the, the, the rumor I heard in Venice was that this was over $100 million. And to think of Baumbach doing that, you know, where, you know, I was saying to a colleague of ours um, there that like, or he was saying to me that like, the salaries for the actors alone would, would constitute the whole budget for a previous Bombac movie. Mm-hmm. You know, so for all that bombast and the sort of size of it, um, the movie was a little cold to the touch. I mean, it kind of almost feels and like, you know, it's going to be at the New York Film Festival, so it's, it's not done yet. But it almost feels like, oh, yeah, that happened. It feels like it's kind of ancient history by now, weirdly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's really good and important for that movie that it plays another big festival. Um, you know, we've seen it in years past where something doesn't really hit the the zeitgeist on its first try and then somehow, you know, really takes off. You know, I think a, a really interesting example of a few years ago was Brooklyn, you know, that, that Saoirse Ronan mm-hmm, movie that premiered mm-hmm. very quietly at Sundance. And then months later, I think was at Toronto and maybe New York and it went exploded, you know, and I don't know if I see that trajectory exactly for white noise, but I think it has, um, it's not set in New York City, but Baumbach is, of course, a quintessentially New York filmmaker and, and maybe the audience there will be more responsive to it. Well, I'm curious about that. And this is different because it was received well in Venice, but The Whale is on its way to Toronto. And Brendan Fraser, I think, was such a like darling of the festival. <laughs> Not the don't worry, darling, the darling. Yeah. Um, people are really rooting for him. And, you know, there was this video of him responding to his standing ovation. I know you're not a huge fan of The Whale, and you can talk about that, but it does seem like it's kind of heading into Toronto to be like, hello, audiences, come embrace this star, really stretching himself and, you know, having his moment. Yeah, embrace him and also let's solidify what it seems like the one that he's going to get an Oscar nomination, if not a win. You know, I would predict him to win right now. Um, The combination of of what he's doing in the film, how it was received, he had this very emotional reaction um, at at the at the. The, the standing ovation, you know, he just, you know, he wasn't weeping, but he was tearful and he seemed really grateful. And he'd said some things, um, I think, at the press conference about how much this meant to him. And I think people can really feel that ardency in the movie. Um, I don't care for the film at all. I think it's, um, well, I think it, one, confirms fears that people had had before the movie came out, people who are familiar with the play or not, about how it would depict people who are obese. And I think 
it unfortunately confirms a lot of those fears. And um, But beyond that, I think it's also just weirdly made. I think there's a terrible score that really does a lot of indicating toward what we're supposed to be feeling in a way that feels very unsophisticated for Darren Aronofsky, even though, he, yes, he is kind of a... He, he's 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 not a minimalist. He's not subtle, but like he knows his way around a score. Usually, at least, yeah, yeah, and and you know he can't do much with the visuals because it's all in one, almost really one room, and in this little apartment in Idaho. Um, there's some interesting camera work here and there, but like I think I said in my review, like because he didn't have much of a play space for like all of his technical indulgences and all that, he really pours that into this prosthetic situation happening with Fraser and. I think the intensity of that, of like the kind of high wire act of can we pull this off, really steals focus from what we should be really paying attention to, which is kind of the humanity of the character. Um, And then you add this turgid score and some kind of stilted writing. And I just, it really, really did not work for me. Yeah, I feel like the backlash cycle of that film is really not even close to begun. um, And it's going to get really intense, like before people see it and after people manage to see it. Um, I mean, I think I would agree with you that Brendan Fraser, uh, I mean, seems very deservingly to be in a really good position. But Richard, what about Colin Farrell? What about Colin Farrell? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about him. But I will say one last thing about The Whale, which is I I was surprised by how many rapturous reviews it got. You know, Mm. I walked out and I said to a colleague, like, ooh, that was bad. And he was like, that was really bad. And... I kind of thought that other people would feel similarly, but then the reviews yeah. came out a day later and I was like, oh, okay. And I think that what I'm, what I'm be curious to see happen with that is, you know, to the small handful of people who, who care about this stuff and follow this stuff, like that is going to put like kind of an intense schism between critic and viewer and people who pay attention to such things, because they're going to be like, you know, if they find the movie offensive, which I think a lot of people are likely to, they're going to say, well, what the hell was all, were all those rave reviews, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that that's going to be an interesting disconnect to kind of look at. It, it sort of happened with Joker. Obviously, that worked out well for Joker um, yeah. at the Oscars. But anyway, but yes, uh, Colin Farrell is in the Banshee of Inisherin, um, which is a Martin McDonough piece that is much similar, more similar to some of his plays than it is to his past three films, uh, which are, you know, American set um, kind of gangster movies. Or no, I guess In Bruges is not American, but the yeah, other two Yeah, I feel are. like In Bruges has been a comparison I've seen in reviews. Well, because it's Farrell and it's Brendan Gleeson, but this yeah, is not that sort of hit men with consciences, you know, kind of debating and shooting and stuff. This is, you know, set in the 1920s on this little island off the coast of Ireland. And it has a little bit of violence in it, but it's mostly just this wistful maybe even more the melancholy kind of story about a friendship that's fracturing and all of these people as the Irish Civil War rages on the the main island, um, kind of try to figure out like what their place in the world is. And is this fractured friendship a metaphor for the Civil War? I think it is to some extent. Um, You know, it's a lonely but funny textured little film and that's really anchored by this incredibly expressive and intelligent performance by Colin Farrell, who has been so great for so long. But I think this feels like, you know, he's been working for, you know, 20 plus years now and has never had an Oscar nomination and um, has deserved them in the past, certainly in Bruges, you mentioned The Lobster. And uh, I think I think he has a good shot of getting it here. The movie was really, really well received. Yeah, I mean, I actually I caught up with the Batman recently, um, just yeah. because I hadn't seen it. And he's like, he's very over the top. I imagine the performance is very different from Banshees, but he's having a good year. Like, it really yeah. feels like all the all the pieces are finally coming into place for him. And like you say, there's so much goodwill toward him at this point, which like he was the bad boy for a while. Like it's been a long road to get here. He was. And yet now he seems to have mellowed out. And he's I think he's might be sober. And he he's very just like, 
I was talking to someone at the festival who who really would know. They they work at Searchlight, um, and they were. I was like, is he? I've heard he's kind of just like a good guy, like kind of a mensch. And he was like, nope, he really is. Like that that is very true. And yeah. I think that's evidenced by the fact that so many interesting directors, Yorgos Lanthimos, you know, Matt Reeves, and obviously McDonough has worked with him several times. Like he he he, interesting people want to work with him, and mm-hmm. I think that's a testament to not only his talent but also probably um, that he's a good person to have on the team. Yeah. Um, from David and Rebecca, it, they seemed pretty clear that Women Talking was the Telluride movie that, like, the most people were just, like, couldn't stop talking about. Was there a clear movie like that in Venice? Tar. Yeah. I uh, think ta- yeah. Tar yeah. was... We, we let you talk about Tar already, yeah. Richard. I, I think I only heard, like, one or two mild things about that movie. Nothing negative. Yeah. So that was certainly a big one. Um and Banshees was up there. You know, it's funny. I, I I actually did get a chance to see it before the festival, um, and so I wasn't in the room when the movie screened in Venice. But the more I, but I, but that also did allow me some time, like a week or so, to think about the movie. And the, the more I thought about it, the bigger it got in my head, and the more sort of consequential, you know, it got. And and I was really pleasantly surprised to see how well it was received because I thought it would people would appreciate it and then move on, mm-hmm. but people really t- kept talking about it. Um, wait, speaking of surprises, though, I had talked to you a little bit about The Sun at some point before the reviews for that came out and knew that you were not especially into it. Yeah. But the reviews for that were warmer than I was expecting when they broke um, today as we record this. I was flabbergasted by that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a not a good movie. And I think it, you know, people, obviously, there were a lot of eyes on this one because Florian Zeller made The Father a couple years ago. One, that movie won a couple of big Oscars. And, really good movie. Um, you know, this is based on another of Zeller's plays. Um but this one feels stilted where the father felt really inventive and interesting and credible. And I think maybe it has to do with lived experience. Like, I don't know, this is a movie about a depressed teenage boy and, and his parents trying to figure out what to do. Um, and so it, it's kind of an issue movie, but I, I it, it weirdly feels very broad in general and not specific. And uh, whereas the father felt really, you know, detailed. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's a problem. But I think also, honestly, like, there, the difference of a movie being set in England uh, and in the United States, like The Sun is, and this mm. being a European director, the language is really stilted. I mean, you have a teenage boy saying, I feel as if I'm going crazy. And you're like, no, nah, it's not what a kid would say in 2022. <laughs> this they, sounds like know, three billboards all over again. That movie drove me crazy, but it's yeah, not specific yeah, American. There is definitely some of that. I mean, I think that's, you know, McDonough going back to, to Ireland and, and the movie working so much better mm-hmm. for me. Uh, I think, you know, I'm not saying that directors have to stay in their home turf or their home continent, but in the sun, it's, it's pretty glaring that this script did not get in a kind of update or an Americanization. I mean, I was joking to people there that I was like, I kept expecting him to say like this teenage boy to say, make love, you know, it has this very like Woody <laughs> Allen seventies kind of patter to it, even though it's about this heavy stuff. So yeah, I was pretty bummed by that one. I mean, I think, you know, Laura Dern is good. Hugh Jackman feels a little at sea. And he's getting he's getting some praise. So yeah, no, I mean, look, you know, the, these all things are, are, you know, I'm seeing them in certain di- weird circumstances sometimes and under stress. Oh, sure. And the only movie I think that was outright pretty much universally panned was Bardo. Um, I mm. did see a couple positive things about that movie, but that was really the uh, if you want to like name a kind of a flop of the festival. I think it was a really high profile one in Bardo. Apparently, its defenders are coming out of the woodwork at Telluride, so that story yeah, might not well, be done yet either. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll catch up next week um, from Toronto. Um, and, we, you know, we did some previewing of that earlier. But is there anything especially you want to flag that um, you expect we'll be talking a lot about next week? 
Uh, I don't, you know, I'm sure you guys have talked about the inspection, um, which is, it's not technically the opening night movie at Toronto tonight, but it, it is on opening night, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's an A24 film. It's getting a big thing at New York Film Festival. So like, and, and I don't really know anything about it. You know, I, I, there's a trailer out, but like, it, it kind of came out of nowhere, like, I feel like a few weeks ago. Yeah. And we hear from a lot of people who like whispers of people who have seen stuff. And that's one that's still really under wraps at this point. Yeah, yeah. So so I'm very curious about that, just because it's suddenly this kind of new player on, on the scene. And then, you know, I, I think we were talking, I was talking with, you know, Oscar-y, pundity colleagues in Venice about, like, have we seen Best Picture yet? And I said, no, I don't think that that has screened. You know, maybe it's at Toronto, maybe it's not anywhere, maybe it's Babylon. Maybe it's Babylon, yeah. But I think the more and more we talked about that and speculated about it, the more and more intrigued and excited I got to see about seeing The Fablemans on Saturday. Yep. I think that I think, you know, even if it's just kind of a nice family drama or whatever, like whatever, whatever shape it ends up taking. Um, I think it's just it's such a huge question mark. Spielberg so rarely goes to film festivals, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. So that kind of energy for a Spielberg film should be really interesting. And it's so personal, allegedly, that you know, I, I would say that is the number one with a bullet, like, gotta see it, run home, review it right away, just to kind of hop into that whole narrative. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of uh, villains from the 2022 movie, The Batman, I'm very excited for Paul Dano specifically yes, in that movie. Yeah, the yeah. whole cast is pretty great. But, um, you know, I guess that's my theme for this episode. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that we'll, you know, we'll definitely have I'll have coverage of that as quick as possible if people want to be up late or early the next morning. Um, yeah, it's the hot ticket for that Saturday. I mean, it's yeah. premiering the same night as Glass Onion, which is nuts. So um, a lot of um, people can't do both. But that, it's going to be a big night. Stay glued to Twitter on Saturday night if you're going to pick a night. I don't. I don't think I've seen a Saturday at, at TIFF like that in a long time, uh, if ever. And yeah. um, I mean, that's it's frustrating, but it's also really exciting. You're skipping a party that we are hosting with the cast of Knives Out 2 to go yeah. see the Fablemans. That's the kind of decisions that are being made. And here. I'm skipping the Sony Pictures Classics dinner, which is always so fun. And do you know, I mean, you know, it is a really big deal to give up free food at these things. Like an I actual sit-down meal. You're not like, going to eat that all is, day. What are you that doing? That is rare. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, look... Spielberg calls and and when he calls you got to answer. So. <laughs> that does it for today's episode. We'll be back next week. Our Tuesday episode will be an Emmys rundown because we did not talk about the Emmys at all in this episode, but they're coming. They'll be on uh, Monday, September 12th, and so next Tuesday we'll have our post Emmys show and then the Thursday after that um, more talk about festivals, all things happening at once. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. We have our Venice and Telluride live blog. There will also be a TIFF live blog by the time you hear this. We are covering it from every possible angle. Um, and you can find um, David and Rebecca's amazing Telluride coverage and Richard's amazing Venice coverage. You can find us on Twitter at HWD or on our own. I am at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. And I'll speak for Richard. He is at Rylaws. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 917-809-7096 your festival season questions. And don't worry, darling, conspiracy theories have been very welcomed. Please keep them coming. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the level of attention we hope you are paying to this podcast goes to me. JFK level conspiracy theories. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs>